Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Thanks for being with us this morning. If you are uh, with us for the first time, my name is Ethan. I am one of the pastors here. And if you are here for the first time, welcome. We're thankful that you're with us. And if you're a regular here, welcome back. We're also thankful you are here. I hope you had a uh, good 4th of July. And I hope you have all your fingers and toes or whatever you might have done. And I, and I also hope that you don't have any like big fines to pay. <laughs> We had a uh, cul-de-sac party at my house, and we have a neighbor that wasn't too interested in some of the things we were doing, and the cops showed up, but we were done. But let me say this, based upon today's text, I confessed our transgressions, (laughs) and he let me off the hook. (laughs) We were sweeping things up, and it was all in the trash can, and the officer was very kind. We weren't doing anything super crazy, though. Anyway, one quick note, kind of before we get into things, is just this. We've been saying this for a few weeks, and I'm going to say this probably for the last time. If, if, uh, if you have kids in the kids' area, kind of what we've done in the history of Free City is, at one point when we first started, it made sense to, because there were only a few kids, it made sense to go get your kids at communion. And so many of the parents uh, started to leave, take communion, and then go to the kids' area and pick up their children. And uh, they missed getting to sing and celebrate together in the last song, they missed leaving out under the benediction and, uh, and just time to gather, and it kind of made for chaos. And so we've just thought this. Parents, why don't you buy another 10 minutes <laughs> and stay in here? So parents, if you have kids in the kids' area, unless you need to leave, please just hang in here until we're, we're dismissed with the benediction at the end of the service. Um, that's probably the last time we're going to say that. But that is, uh, that's kind of the new thing. Anyway, we are uh, this summer in the book of Psalms, and, and it's really just a series. It's kind of a thing that started where we would get in between books of the Bible, and, and we would think, man, what do we do on the in-between weeks before we start something new, and, and just trying to plan to fit with the semester or whatever. And we decided, why don't we just try trucking through the Psalms, and that's kind of our in-between thing. And so it became our in-between thing, and now it's our summer thing. And really... What we want in this is, is to just kind of understand that we read the Psalms so much, and even as we're like singing, today Philip read from the Psalms and the call to worship, and, and we do this oftentimes together. And really, the Psalms are the prayer book of the church. It's, it is the song book of the church, and they're just songs and 
hymns, prayers, different things to really really talk about God and, and to confess who we are. And, and so we see different psalmists throughout the scriptures, throughout the psalms, write from a, a really honest place. And, and I think it's really helpful for us to look at it and kind of get insight into that which we feel, but we, we run from and we don't really know that we feel it. And so as we look at the psalms even today, our, my hope is that we would just begin to, under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, receive the word that God has for us, but even become people who, who aren't just given to intellectualism or, or emotionalism, but we would be people who connect the head and the heart, and we're full people living in the fullness of who God's made us to be. So let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll get into the text today, Psalm 32. Father, for, uh, for many of us, we have, we've heard, we've read, maybe we've grown up hearing of your forgiveness and your kindness. And, and God, we, we sing of it. We just sang of it. We've thought about sin. We've thought about grace that's been given to us in light of that sin. But Lord, we do confess that, that the, the good news, that truth, it hasn't landed on us. Like we haven't fully stepped into the weight of your glory as your children. And so, Father, this morning, help us to see and and be aware of, even as we just sang, that you don't count our sins against us. Our sins, they were many, but Father, you've carried them away. And so, Lord, I do pray for those of us in this room this morning who are, are under the weight of guilt. Lord, I ask that this morning you'd hear again and by your Spirit experiencing experience the reality that you're the one who comes to liberate us, to free us from that guilt. That in Christ you've taken our sins away and cleansed us and given us a new name in him. And Lord, for those of us in the room that can't remember the last time we felt guilty about anything, I ask that your spirit would, would do the same miraculous work and confront us with the horror of sin that we have in our lives. And you'd lead us to the glory to, to worship you, Father, that you are the one who cleanses us. So Lord, we ask that you take your word, you draw us in, you'd shape us around it, you'd make us people who walk out in joy, and that we may be those who, who rejoice as we're set free from guilt and sin and deeply aware that we're loved by you, the Father who shouts over us deliverance. In Christ's name, amen. It was uh, the summer of, of 2005. I was in my hometown of Weatherford, Oklahoma. This is western Oklahoma, about 70 miles straight west of Oklahoma City on I-40. I was working construction with one of my best friends, Craig. We were... <clears throat> Man, I didn't expect that. My friend Craig, he has a different life now, and, and good grief. Uh, <clears throat> However, I wasn't going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about that. We were, we were gutting and remodeling a convenience, <clears throat> a convenience store near campus. This is a lighthearted story, I promise. <laughs> uh, and uh, this, particular, this particular week, our task was to, to dig out for a retaining wall that was going to go in the drive-thru of the convenience store. And so we were supplied with shovels, and pickaxes, digging horizontally into the side of a hill, and this is the dead of summer, and we're in a drought, so you can imagine this is miserable work. 
But our labor, it was accompanied by loud music coming from Craig's, Craig's 1970s El Camino that his brother had equipped with a sound system that could be felt, felt from probably like three blocks away. Like he would rattle the whole town. The town's a little bigger than three blocks, but... Anyway, we were living the dream, you know? Shirts off, aviators on. We were doing this right. It was a Tuesday, and I know this because in 2005, things have changed. I don't know when it changed, but new albums used to release on Tuesdays. This was pre-Apple Music or Spotify, those types of things. You had to go to the store to buy something. It was also pre-Amazon Prime, so you didn't have that luxury. And the thing is, one of our favorite bands, their sophomore album was set to release on that day. So we arrived at work about 6 a.m. that morning, and we had made plans to, to go later that evening to snag the album. Well, by now, it's, it's about 10 a.m., and I remember we had kind of exhausted the CDs that we had on hand. And, uh, and if you've never been to Weatherford, the thing is, if your musical taste is something other than that of the like top, probably not even top 100 Billboard charts, probably top 50, or country music, then Walmart, which is your only option to buy an album, they're not going to have what you like. So we thought, hmm, what should we do? So after a few minutes of deliberation and recognizing our boss's minimal presence on the job, we decided to jump in the car and go to Hastings. Well, Hastings, as I said, Weatherford is about 70 miles west of Oklahoma City, is in Oklahoma City. (laughs) So we jump in the car, and about an hour later... We pull up to Hastings. We walk in. Lo and behold, they had a few copies of the album we were looking for. So we bought one each. We paid. We popped in, some of you may scoff at this, into A&W Long John Silver's <laughs> and ate, but primarily went because we wanted a frosted mug to drink root beer, right? So we did that. I think that place is maybe closed down now. It, we lost it in Lawrence, right? And uh, so we did that, jumped back in the car, got back to work, and now we did all of this on the clock, right? So we got back to the job site. We worked the rest of the day with renewed strength thanks to these new tunes, and that was Tuesday. Well, Friday rolls around, and uh, Friday afternoons, our boss, his name's Gary, Gary would always call us, and, and he would just ask for our hours. So, like, we didn't punch a time clock, and he paid us in cash. So this was, like, the best, I would maybe still say one of the best jobs of my life. We got paid well. And, and the other thing is, Gary, we made $10 an hour. He paid us in 20s. So if you worked three hours, you got paid for 40. Like, he was just pretty generous. So that was kind of the deal. So Friday afternoon rolls around. He calls us for our hours. And uh, what do you think we reported? Did we subtract the hours, the three hours that we went to Oklahoma City and back? No way. <laughs> Why would we do that? We wanted to get paid, and we were fairly certain that Gary wouldn't recognize the discrepancy. So I told him my hours. And then I hung up the phone, and then this guilt came in. (laughs) I thought, what if he does catch me? My dad had landed me the job. It was really to buy, like, my first really great guitar. And so I'm working my tail off, and if I don't have that job probably don't have any other way to do that. So I'm now kind of like, what if he finds out? What if I lose the job? I'm at this crossroads and my soul's growing anxious with guilt. 
So I kind of mull over my options till about 5, 8, 5 p.m. And on my way to his house to get paid, I decided to roll the dice and just try to get paid. So I walk up to his door and knock. And he answers. I engage in the absolute most minimal small talk of ever in my life for fear that I'd be caught if I lingered. He handed me the cash, and I quickly left. Driving the five minutes home, I felt that same guilt. Thousand emotions, deep guilt. I was a few blocks from home, and, and then I finally thought, man, I need, to, I need to tell him the truth. This is actually really peculiar because I wouldn't feel guilt about that, I don't feel like, anymore. So maybe that says something <laughs> terrible about me. <clears throat> but I thought I needed to come, come clean. So I, I pull up to his house, I turn around, you know, head hanging low, walk up to his door. He answers, and I tell him about the outing Tuesday afternoon. I was fully prepared to give him the cash back, the $40, because it was three hours, you know, that thing. And, uh, I, and even kind of like thought, man, he might can me. I don't think he will, but he could. I was fully prepared to give the money back, prepared to potentially lose my job. I talked fast. I filled in the empty gaps of my monologue with apologies. But once I finished talking, he, he just simply said, hey, Ethan, it's okay. And I kind of, well, but man, I'm so, you know, so sorry. He interrupts me. And he's like, no, 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 Ethan, it's fine. I know you're not going to do it again. Keep the cash. Have a good weekend. Don't worry about it. And I, I was kind of baffled, right? Like, I stole from my boss. I did my own thing. We had fun. I mean, I can't say that we worked every moment that we were on the clock anyway, but, like, we for sure weren't working at this point. And, and what did he do? He, he bought the record for me. He bought my lunch and paid for our gas. Wild. I was baffled. I tell this story because I think that it is in, in a small way, small, small way, a snippet of, of kind of Psalm 32. And I want us to hear this morning the God who longs to forgive us, the God who longs to cleanse us and to cover our sins, to forgive us. And so my hope and prayer this morning is, is not that we would just hear this once again about a God who forgives, but, but we would be those who believe in this God who forgives. So let's, let's look at the text and take a drink. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 32. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So blessed or happy, as some translations will say. New Revised Standard Version says happy, and, and both are, are great words for this. But I think we need to do a little bit of work. I'll, I'll probably use blessed and happy interchangeably a bit today. But we kind of need to clarify a little bit about the word blessed. I think that we at large, like us in this room and, and society around us, tend to use this word, we're familiar with this word, primarily as, as sentiment, right? 
So we often think about, think about blessings or the one who's blessed as, as what they have or how their life's going. So we think about the pay raise that we just received or the, or the new home that we just purchased that we closed on. We think about the number of friends that attended the last party we threw or, or the size of our families. We think about maybe even things of less significance. We, we think about how many Instagram followers we have. <laughs> Or how many people read our last blog post? Like we, we put blessing tied to, to external things. We throw around the word wherever it seems fit. But the Bible, when it uses this word blessed, it, it makes an objective, an all-inclusive declaration about the nature and the character of life. So when David says, blessed is the one, he's not defining like, his circumstances, like the things that he has or, or doesn't have. He's providing an outline of his life. He's making a declaration. If you want the blessed life, the happy life, if you will, clue in. This is what it looks like. So if you notice in, in Psalm 32, there's not a single reference to the external circumstances. No references to health or wealth or prosperity. We find in it that the blessed life actually has nothing to do with these things and it has everything to do with the relationship to God. So the text makes the claim that really is, is almost like probably not, if we were honest, not believed by us in here, but, but for sure not believed by culture out there. And, and it's this that how you relate to God is the all-determining factor as to whether or not you have this blessed life, whether you are blessed or cursed. So for David to be opposed to God, to stand up against him, is no matter what else is going on in your life, it, it is the gravest set of circumstances imaginable. But if you stand rescued, redeemed by this God, if you have right standing before him, you in fact have everything. The good life, the blessed life, the happy life in all of its fullness. And the text begins with one bottom line presupposition that if you don't see it or you miss it, it'll make kind of little sense today. It's this, it's the most central thing in all of reality that the most essential thing in your life is the nature of your relationship with God. And so it's just the question, are you at odds with him? Are you, or are you reconciled to him? This determines everything else that the psalmist will say. And so my main point today is really just this, that for the fullness of life, there's nothing like being forgiven, that only the forgiven are truly blessed. Only the forgiven are truly happy. So for the fullness of life, there's nothing like being forgiven. The only the blessed are truly happy. Only the forgiven are truly happy. So if this is the path for fullness of living, how do we define the blessed life? And we'll kind of break this down in, into three points this morning. As we look at the blessing of forgiveness, we'll look at the process of forgiveness, and then finally we'll close up at the result of this forgiveness. So look at the first part of verse 1 once more as we see the blessing of forgiveness. And in order to kind of understand this blessing, we'll, we'll look at 
the comprehensive nature of sin first, and then we're going to look at the, f- the forgiveness, but we're going to kind of break it into to bits a little bit. I think you'll be able to follow. So verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now if we stop there, in verse 1 or 2, we see three terms that define sin and three terms for forgiveness. First we'll look at the terms for sin. We'll loop back around afterward and look at the forgiveness that's matched with them. But here, first up, we see the word transgression. This word is, it really means just willful rebellion against the one who we owe allegiance to. So this is rebellion to God's authority. This term is meant to hold some weight, as, as all sin should hold weight. But it, this is, it's not like a, a stepping out of bounds. It's not like you're bowling. If, do you do that anymore? People do that? Cross the foul line, it buzzes at you. It's not just crossing the line. This is willful rebellion. It's no accident. Transgression here, it's a deliberate, a personal defiance of God. Rebellion against his will. It's looking at him, hearing him ask you something or tell you something to do and and looking back at him and saying loud and clear, no, 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 I'm going to do my own thing. Forget that. This is me asking my kids, probably not both of my kids, my daughter, who's older, my son just, he's too young, he, he he wouldn't do it right. Not yet, not yet, but he will. It would be me asking my daughter, her name's Blythe, to put the chickens back in the coop at night and check for eggs. This would be her looking at me and saying, no way, and slamming her room, bedroom door. You know, like, not doing it. Willful, it's defiance. Now, this would be much, this actually, this transgression is actually way bigger because it's in to God, but you get the picture, right? And look at the second part of verse 1. First we see the word transgression, and now we see this. The one whose sin is covered. So we see the word sin. And here this would probably denote like missing the mark or falling short of the goal that God has set for us. You've, you've possibly heard kind of the connection to, to archery and defining sin. Missing the mark, missing the target, falling short. Now to stick to the chicken theme, this would be me asking my daughter to put the chickens in the coop at night. And uh, then when I do it, when I ask her to do it, she doesn't do it when I ask, but she does it on her own time. She thinks, let me finish this, this drawing that I'm working on, or let me finish watching my show. And, she, and then she finally gets around to it. She goes outside to check for eggs. She doesn't shut the, the door that we pull the eggs out from. She doesn't shut it. And then the main entrance, she shuts it, but she doesn't latch it. So she's kind of done what I did, but she missed the mark. Like, there's a greater expectation there. The outcome is short of the goal. It's sin. And then in, the, in verse 2, we see, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So this third word is iniquity. It's a, a going away of, a deviation from the right path. It's a crookedness, being twisted. You know, potentially a helpful picture in this would be Second Samuel 11. If you're familiar with the story, it's the story of David and Bathsheba. And, and in summary, David looks to the roof of a near, nearby house. He's the king, looks to the roof, off of a roof of where he's standing, and he sees a woman bathing. Well, the woman is Bathsheba. She is the wife of another man, Uriah the Hittite. 
And David sins for her, for who can deny the king, or who will? And he winds up laying with her, and, and she goes away, and then she returns news that she has conceived and she's pregnant. Now, there's much more to the story there. There's attempted cover-ups, and there's even murder, and, and eventually David being outed by Nathan. Many believe that this psalm comes following Psalm 51 after David was outed by Nathan, and then this is kind of the culmination of all of that. But there's that, but I wanna, I'm trying to convey this, that, that David looked upon Bathsheba and his heart was twisted. It was crooked from the right path. Okay, if you know anything about David, years before in his life, before he was king, he was chased by another king, Saul, who was out to kill him, trying to pin him up against the wall with a spear. The thing is, at that time, before he was king, he ran for his life from Saul. He was terribly fearful. Things were chaotic. Chaos just surrounded him. But in the midst of that, he cried out to God to save him, saying, God, you are my refuge. You're the one I long for. You are my security. But now, his heart's twisted. He doesn't long for the father anymore. He longs for another woman. And in doing so, it's iniquity. When we look at these three words, we see the comprehensive nature of sin. We see, and maybe even as we talk about it, I'm like, maybe you're aware of how that works in your life. Maybe we feel the burden of sin. Like how, and if sin is all-encompassing, how will I ever get it right? So we consider it like how many times in your life do you feel like God is telling you to do something, maybe by his spirit impressing it on you or explicitly commanding you, to do something through his word, but, but you willfully turn and do the complete opposite. You do what you want to do. In looking at these three words for sin, we find this, that all that we bring to the table is sin. It's devastating. And, and sin, this is all that we have to contribute to the forgiveness that's stated in Psalm 32. But thankfully, the first two verses provide us more than just three words for sin, but three suitable words for forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on, on Psalm 32, he states this when talking about the three words and then coming into the three words of forgiveness. He says, Note the three words so often used to denote our disobedience, our transgression, sin, and iniquity. They are the three-headed dog at the gates of hell. But our glorious Lord has silenced his barkings forever against his own believing ones. The trinity of sin is overcome by the trinity of heaven. And so we look at the words of forgiveness. We see these three words that encompass a vast array of sins. But the key here is that the sins can be forgiven. Look back at verse 1. First part. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So we've looked at transgression. Now, forgiven literally means to, to carry away, to lift. So this transgression, it's weighty. It, it pins you down. It holds you back. But God has lifted it. He's carried it away. He removes the burden. David carried his sin, and God carried it away. You know, this would be an example in, in Psalm 103, verse 12, where it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Forgiven. 
And then the second part of verse 1, whose sin is covered. Well, covered here is, is in regard to being concealed or out of sight. Our covering, it's exchanged with God's covering. So David initially tries to cover his own sin. We do this all the time. We try to cover up what we've done. We do our best, but, but what we try to cover cannot be covered. No matter how elaborate, we always fall short. But when we come to God, our sin is truly, utterly covered. It's buried completely. If we think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they sin, they eat of the, of the fruit of the tree which God commanded them not to, and then what do they do? They cover themselves, they hide because of their sin. But their covering is insufficient, and, and this is us. We give our best attempts, but we cannot cover our sin. We need God to cover our sin. And so when Adam and Eve, in the story of them in the garden, as, as they fashion leaves in their best attempt, it, it didn't work out. But, but we see a few verses later that, that God fashions clothing to cover them out of animal hides. He sacrifices an animal to cover them. It, it's a foreshadowing of what is to eventually come, that their sin will be completely forgiven, completely covered. And finally, you look at verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And if, if you're aware of your sin at all, and some of you, just judging off the room, a number of people, some of you are probably widely aware of your sin. Like you just kind of rot with the guilt. And maybe you, you tally mark your sin. Like you've got a pretty clear record of it. You count your iniquity and your guilt. You sin, you know it. You've screwed up time and time again. You know the marks against you. But in the blessed life, according to David, this is the life where God does not count those sins against you. The blessed one is forgiven. Their sins are covered. Their iniquity is not counted against them. This is the blessing of forgiveness. But there's a catch. Look at the second part of verse 2. It says this, And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, this is a bit different. The first three really words for forgiveness and sin, they, they speak of the actions of God, but... This kind of brings it home a bit more. It has to do with the, the nature of the heart, the person, as the, word, as the verse says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Many of us gather here today and under that weight of guilt. Like each day you, you maybe wake up kind of haunted by the guilt that you have, the, the small things that you've done, the large things that you've done, or, or the things you've even potentially left undone as we confessed together earlier your whole life defined by trying to clean yourself up and prove yourself to earn your value back. But then there, there's a whole nother group of us in here that we don't even consider our sin. And the thing is that our, our, our culture really tends to do kind of two things with sin. One, it, it either labels you forever, which maybe kind of throws you to the ones who tally mark your sin and you're widely aware of it. So it labels you forever. You're kind of scarlet lettered. You're in the unpublished newspapers of your friends in the gossip circles or in the community that you live in. 
or like you're, you're the one who did that, you're that person, or culture treats sin as just no big deal at all. And, and in here we have both sides of that probably represented. And to the first group, this, this psalm does call us to see again and again to believe that God is the one who carries this sin away. He doesn't count it against us. That he's the one who, in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, washes our sin away. But to the second group, to, to those of us who don't feel the weight of our sin, who have no acknowledgement of our sin, David says that the blessed life, the happy life, the full life, is not for the one who ignores their sin, but the one who's not deceived, who's in heart, who's in who's spirit, there is no deceit. The one who knows that their sin actually costs something. See, all of us, if we're honest, in the reality of what's going on, we are guilty. And some of us live with that awareness. Our lives kind of darkened by the cloud of that reality. And others of us ignore it. But I think in, in moments of clarity, we would actually, the, the moments that we, we kind of tend to run from, we, we actually do become a little bit aware that, that things are not right. And so as we've seen, whether sins are, why we're widely aware of them or we overlook them, this psalm, God doesn't want either one to be there, but he says, hey, I want the hearts that are deceived and I want the hearts that are aware of sin. Sin costs something, it's weighty, it's devastating, it wrecks lives, it's an offense to God, but God is the one who we said earlier, he carries our sin away. He won't allow us to remain under the cloud of guilt, but he also won't allow us to remain oblivious to the reality and horror of sin. And this is the blessing of forgiveness, that our sins, they're lifted, they're covered, they're not counted against us. And then David turns in verse 7, and he kind of grounds this truth. So essentially, he kind of gave us the beginning at the, end, at the end, at the beginning, the full picture of those who are blessed and what they look like. But how did he get there? What's the process to this forgiveness? Look at verse four, 3. It says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I'll think about verse 3. I wonder how many of us in this room, our lives are de defined even as an, an attempt to evade guilt, like to get away from it, to wash ourselves of it. H how much of like what we consider ambition, so like just drive, right? You got it in you. It's, it's the thing that presses you on. How much of what we consider ambition is, is actually just an attempt to make ourselves right, to make something of ourselves because we're keenly aware of the things that we've left undone. I wonder how much our, our lives are spent trying to escape the condemnation that's been layered upon us throughout our lives or how much of our lives are spent trying to atone for the, the sins that we committed in high school or college or two years ago two weeks ago, knowing the effects that they had on others. But here, David confesses that he spent his life running from that guilt. He was running from God. And in his running, in his silence, 
silence in his very life, his physical and spiritual body began to waste away. He grew weary. He kept his mouth silent, so his body spoke. Why did he grow weary? The first part of verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I want to make note of this here. When we read that, we, we might think immediately about some type of divine punishment. This is God smiting and judging. But if you're here this morning and you've, you're kind of heavy with guilt, and that's kind of your disposition, how you walk around, if you feel weak, maybe weary, I don't think that this is the anger of God. I don't think it's the wrath of God or the judgment of God, but I think the heavy hand listed here in, in Psalm 32 is the kindness of God. It's his mercy. The God described here, the, the one who forgives sins, the one who carries sins, who covers sins and doesn't count them, he's the God who comes after to draws you back and he weighs you down, wearies you with his hand. And in his weariness, what does David do? He responds. Look at verse 5. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So the heavy hand of the Lord leads David to repentance. To echo the beginning of Psalm 32, David repeats the three words used for sin, but he takes ownership this time. If you look at it, it says, my iniquity, my transgressions, my sin. In using these words, he acknowledges and clarifies that these are his sins before God. He acknowledged them. He did not cover, and he confessed. And what happens? Look at the end of verse 5. And God forgives his sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. In the process, David opens his mouth, he confesses, and instantly forgiven. The burden lifted and carried away in a moment. If that's the outcome, why would he keep his mouth shut? After testifying to this blessed forgiveness, David continues and he turns to call us to action. He encourages us to cry out to God. He invites us into this process of forgiveness. Look at verse 6. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. For surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him, for you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Look at the word godly here at the beginning of verse 6. This isn't synonymous for the one who, who has no sin. It doesn't mean those who do the right thing or have done the right thing. He's simply speaking to those who will stop running, to those who will throw their hands up and surrender and confess their sins before God, who will acknowledge and stop being deceived. <clears throat> In confessing sins to God, David describes the circumstances that he was running from, running from his guilt as something that was, it was kind of pursuing something. He gives a picture of waters rushing around, but God comes and God carries his sins. He lifts David's sins. He forgives him. David's sins are covered. And God preserves David's life. And just as he preserved 
David, David now calls us to heed this teaching and receive the same blessedness. So God saved David from that which would drown him, a picture of rushing water, but God lifted the all-encompassing waters. The God who carries us, who preserves us, and who chases after us. So I think just the question is like, do you know God as the hiding place? As David said, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. Do you know God in that way? The one who surrounds you, shouts deliverance over you. And maybe just the consideration, like, what do you need him to carry away? What do you need to confess to him? We see the blessing of forgiveness. We see David walk through that process of forgiveness. And then look at verse 10. We'll jump ahead and then we'll come back to 8. But we see the outcome of forgiveness. It says this in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This is a great picture. It's really loaded with meaning that the steadfast love, this is, this is the covenantal love of God. It's, it's not like some kind of distant affection, like I love you, arm around you, I care about you. It's not an assumed love. It's God standing. It's not, I guess, yeah, it's, it's not assumed. It's not the stead, his steadfast love isn't just kind of him waiting for you to mess up and then, then kind of caring for you, smiting you for your sins or whatever. It, it's, it's the God who comes in to the midst of where you are and binds himself to you to cover your sins. He's the one in our midst. He surrounds us with love. And God's covenant is the one that never breaks. He is the faithful one who's steadfast, never to leave. So then look back at verse 8. God himself now speaks. He says this in 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He gives a warning. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. So in this kind of outcome of forgiveness, we, we see a couple things really in, in the fullness of Psalm 32 about God. We see that he's the one who comes, he binds himself to those who he forgives, those who confess. He forgives their sins and trespasses, binds himself to them. And, and then that he comes to give instruction and his eyes are upon them. So this is the God whose eyes are upon you, the one who's near you and knows you, who intimately knows you, he made you. He's the one who comes as father and he provides counsel and instruction to teach us and to lead us in the way that we should go. And at the heart of this teaching, in, in verse nine, he warns us, hey, don't be like the mule or the horse. Don't constantly turn away from me where I'm constantly having to pull back. Instead, he says, hey, I love you. I care for you. We've seen it at the beginning. Your sins are forgiven. I've lifted them and you have nothing else to flee from. So stay near me. At the heart of this forgiveness, the heart of steadfast love, God surrounds those and shouts deliverance as the one who longs to commune with his people. He counsels them, instructs them, and walks with them. Now, as David wrote Psalm 32, he, he describes the, the vastness of the love of God. 
and he had a glimpse. He, he knew the covenant that God had with him, but he didn't fully understand the picture, the full measure of the salvation of what was to come. And so in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, at the end of Romans 3, really. Paul gives us insight into this. In Romans 3, Paul describes this covenant love and, and how forgiveness comes to us. And here's what he says, Romans 3, 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. For if the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory. Everyone has guilt. It's real. But they're justified by his grace. Justified means that your sins have been dealt with. They've been lifted. You are accepted and bound to God as a gift. This is all done as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. So how does the redemption come? Well, through Christ. The forgiveness found in him. And what did God do? He put him forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to cover your sins. And this is to be received by faith, to show that God's righteousness, to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Paul tells us how, that, that for centuries, God over and over had passed over sins. He didn't hold transgressions against the transgressors, the rebellion, the hurting of one another, the defamation of things that he had made, refusal to worship him. He, he didn't deal with it according to the sins, but over and over and over again, exercised patience and kindness and forgiveness. But the forgiveness that he gave calls forth justice. So he winds up ending, sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be hung up on the cross. And on the, on the cross, he was cursed. And it's there that we find our sins carried and lifted. That there that our transgressions are covered by his blood shed. As Jesus bore the wrath of God, the full weight of our iniquities, we find that our sins, they're not counted against us. And not having our sins counted against us, this welcomes us into the blessed life. Full living under true and utter forgiveness. It's like, I, I don't know what you've done this morning. I don't know what you've done in years past or what you brought into this place or what kind of weighs you down for years and years. I don't know what the guilt of your sins are. But I want you to hear me out. In Christ... God's not mad at you. He's forgiven you in Christ. He's not angry at you. And in him, all of your sins, they've been covered. They've been lifted and carried away. The one who made everything, he loves you. This is a wild reality. That our, our sins, by a simple confession, they're not counted against us. But he works, God, and he pursues us in order to cover our sins. He washes us and he carries our sins away by the blood of Jesus. We're not condemned before God. And all that's required in the text today is that we stop running, that we acknowledge our sins before him. 
First John in the first chapter in verse 9 says this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as you do so today, you, you'll find mercy beyond belief in this God that turns again and again to say, I forgive you, I care about you, I love you. Finally, let's, let's look at verse 11. We see the result of being gripped by this sort of love, the outcome of forgiveness. It says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I kind of want to have said this earlier, but I want to remind you, the righteous here, it doesn't mean the good ones, those who've, who've done the right things. Upright in heart, doesn't, it doesn't mean that. He's describing the righteous and upright in heart as simply those who stop running, who surrender to him, who confess their sins and receive true freedom. So you're no longer labored under guilt. You have nothing to prove, not defined by trying to clean yourself up, but God loves you. He washes you. He takes all of your sins far, far away, and now you're free, free to receive the counsel, the instruction of God, free to walk in the joy of what it is to commune with him, the God who loves you and does not count your sins against you. You receive, as the psalm says in verse 11, gladness and joy, and you hear the shouts of God who's intent on delivering you from all your sin. So many of you in this morning, you're here and you already know this. Like you could have said everything that I just said, you could have said it to me in the hallway before church, right? But I think what we, what we do is, I said this at the beginning, like we know it, but we don't know it. Like we don't fully believe this. We don't live in it. Like maybe we still operate as though God is, is angry at us. Maybe he's, there's some kind of secret holding of, of our stuff against us, and he's really just disappointed with us. But I, I want to say this again. It's simple, and, and it could be trite, and it could be so you could just hear it and walk away. But in Christ, God's not mad at you. He cares for you. He lifts your sins. He delivers you. He makes you right. And sets you on a completely new path. He redefines your life. You have a new identity. And this is true for those who confess their sins. Now, as we kind of come to the time where we take communion, we remember that, that our sin was dealt with upon the cross. All of it was carried away so that we might know true freedom, truly know what it means to be a child of God that we might be the ones who, who've received this blessing of forgiveness through the process that, that really leads us to fullness of life. And so if you're here this morning and you confess your sins before God, I just want to repeat that. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you all, from all unrighteousness. You've done that. You're a Christian today, and we welcome you to the communion table. If you believe in Jesus, we welcome you to come and and take part of the, the bread and the wine and, and remember using this as, as really a movement to stir about that which we know to ask the, the Holy Spirit of God to foster more belief in what God has given us, the life that he sets us on. 
So if you're a Christian, we invite you to the table as we move to communion. And if you're not a Christian, you're with us today. We are thankful that you're with us, and, and I hope that, that this is a place that's safe and, and a good space to ask questions and feel cared for and, and loved. And if it's not, I'd like to hear about it. I'd like to hear how you're not feeling that way. But, but we, we ask that as we come to communion that, that you would kind of respect this meal and you wouldn't partake in it. But if you're kind of interested in, in a bit more of what we're talking about, there's going to be some, some prayers up on the screen that maybe would be helpful to just frame your mind around and maybe you could even offer them or to even just hang tight patiently at your seat. As we move to communion, there's prayers on the screen. There's people in the back to pray with. If you're carrying a load, a burden of guilt, and you want to be freed from it, maybe you need to go talk with someone in the back and pray with them and, and let them speak the words of the Lord over you that God's not mad at you in that. Confess your sins, find freedom, and walk in freeness. Free, fully free life. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do ask that this morning as, we, as we've heard your word that, that we would not just hear it, but we would believe it, that, that we, those who have trespassed against you, those who our lives are full of iniquity in all different categories and, and to different levels, Lord, I ask that we wouldn't, we wouldn't try to gauge our sins against those of our friends or those who we see potentially on TV, but Lord, we would just see our sins as trespasses against you, us, maybe even just see that it's us shaking our fist at you, the God who made us and everything. But Lord, that we would hear your kindness, that we would feel the weight of your hand wearying us, and, and in our weariness, we would confess our sins to you. We would say, we can't make it on your own. We need you. I'm tired of carrying this. Lord, would you please carry it? And so would you assure us this morning that in Christ all our sins are carried away and you remember them no more? Would you lead us to the fullness of life as we experience true and utter forgiveness? In Jesus' name, amen.